Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. Well, we are continuing in our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. You can find this on page 852 in the Blue Pew Bible, and if you need larger print, we have some Red Pew Bibles in the back, and it's on page 1013 in that Bible. While you're turning there, just want to remind you of a few things. Uh, As Hannah said, we have these invitation cards to give out to help invite people to church. These are great ways to not only connect with people, to have conversations with people, but also to help people see and to know where our or when our church meets, and how they can invite other people. Also, during this time, we have what we call Caruso Kids Zone. Uh, That's where kids ages 5 to 5th grade can go out the back door. Uh, This year and the next few years, they're going through the scripture from beginning to end, seeing how the gospel is one story. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. So they're going through the gospel stories and seeing that. Parents, I would encourage you to ask those kids uh, during lunch or afterwards, what did they learn? What did they, what did they talk about? Also wanted to make you aware that in that back on that shelf, we have these notebooks, uh, which are empty. These are opportunities for you to take sermon notes. So please feel free to grab one of these. We bought these for you. Uh, I would write your name and sermon notes on the front and then just keep bringing these back so that you can take notes as we go through the Gospel of Mark and beyond. And finally, I just want to remind you, as we've already stated, we've got family meal after worship today. This is a time for us to eat together, to fellowship together. Even if you didn't bring anything, please stay. We would love to get to know you well over food. In the book of Mark, or in the book of Luke, we see Jesus at going to or coming from a meal. Meals are great opportunities to fellowship and to revel in what God has done in our lives. Having turned to Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72, please stand for the reading of God's word. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders said to Peter, again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Father, as we open this text, we pray that you would help us not only comprehend the beauty of the gospel in this text, but to remember that while Peter sinned, Jesus forgave him. 
We pray that you would help us to hide the truths of the gospel in our heart. That when we struggle and when we sin and when we are tempted, we can remember these things. And we pray that you help us to work out with our hands the message of Christ's salvation that is made so evident in this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we say every week as we begin, context is king. king. That's right. I keep scheduling it at the beginning so that you stay awake. Don't be surprised if it comes later. Or maybe not. We say context is king because any time we're going to be reading Scripture, we need to understand what the context is. Who wrote the book? Who was it written to? What was it written about? What's it addressing? Who's the audience? What type of genre is it? Is it a letter? Is it a prophecy? Is it a story? What are the things that are going on? And so having that in mind, we've been studying Mark. We know that Mark is one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are known as the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels because they have many of the same stories. And Mark is the shortest of the synoptic Gospels. Mark was written by John Mark from Peter's first-hand account. Mark was writing down what Peter had seen and what had gone on. It was written, probably actually the first Gospel written, and it was written primarily to Gentile Christians. When you look at the book of Matthew, you see a lot of Jewish history and, and assumptions made on things like that. But Mark was written more to Roman soldiers, Gentile Christians, who don't have that background in the Jewish faith. We've looked at some of the themes of Mark and talked about how we see in the book of Mark the sonship of Jesus. God says, this is my son in whom I am pleased we see the authority of Jesus, how Jesus can cast out demons and uh, control the weather, how Jesus is able to heal the sick and the blind and the lame. And we talked about how that authority was not the reason he comes, but instead it promotes what he is teaching. And what he is teaching is that gospel of Jesus. He's telling his disciples and the people over and over again about this coming Messiah and how he is it. Many of them don't get that early on, but how he is the Messiah. And he's not the Messiah they're expecting, but an even greater one. We've also been looking throughout the book of Mark at how Jesus disciples those who are around him, how he pours into them, how he loves them, despite them repeatedly not understanding what it is that Jesus is teaching. And while we've been going through the book of Mark visually, we've been using the imagery of kintsugi pottery, which is a Japanese art form where uh, broken bowls and plates are mended back together, but instead of making them uh, hiding that they were broken, the mending is accented so that you can see the broken pieces and how beautiful the pieces are with their breaks. We've talked about how sin breaks us, sin wounds us. And how Jesus heals those wounds, brings us back together so that we can serve the purpose for which we were created to love and glorify him. We've used this pottery as a visual representation of the gospel and what it does in our lives. And today, as we look at these verses, we're going to be looking at what is sin, I just made you all very, very uncomfortable, I know. 
We're going to talk about what is sin. We're going to talk about how sin is rampant in our lives. And we're going to talk about how the gospel is the answer that not only checks the box, but brings us joy. So what is sin? According to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Yes, that was written a long time ago. That means we are not doing what God asks us to do, or we are doing what God tells us not to do. We see sin described throughout Scripture. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse 17, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, we see again what we've heard over and over again. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Sin is rampant. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about that because we don't want to have to admit that we sin. And yet, we do. Why? Why do we sin? There's a lot of reasons. Some of it is for selfishness. We want something for ourselves. Some of it is Fear. We, we fear other people. We fear uh, loss. We fear other people's opinions. Sometimes we sin because we doubt. We don't believe that God can do whatever it is that we need Him to do. Or we don't believe that God is good enough. Sometimes we sin in pride. We believe that we are good enough. So instead of pursuing God, we say we are the best. We are the ones to be raised up. And there are a lot of other motivations. But whatever our motivation is, our sin separates us from God. In the book of Genesis, the first book of Scripture, we see this described in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We see this first sin. Now a serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, be to de- was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We've talked before about what Genesis 3 tells us, that the Lord has told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And that Satan lies and, and twists God's words. But even in her response to Satan, Eve twists God's words. Eve goes farther than God does and says you're not supposed to touch it. Satan tries to continuously convince us to abandon God's way and pursue our own to be like God. Sin is pursuing things so that we are like God instead of pursuing God. In the book of Mark, as we've been studying recently, we've seen, we've seen the pride of the religious leaders. And we've seen that pride drive them to try and kill Jesus. We've seen the selfishness of Judas who betrays Jesus for his own gain. We've seen the fear of the disciples as they abandon Jesus in the garden. And today we're going to see Peter's sin during Christ's trial. So today we're going to look at Peter's sin in this text. And we're going to look at Christ's salvation. Let's start by looking at Peter's sin. Now, if you remember, in chapter 14, verses 26 through 31, it says this, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Not only that, but to set our context of where this is happening, in verse 54, as Jesus was brought before the council, we see, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of a high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. So that's our setting. That's our context of where this is happening. Peter has followed at a long distance after running away when Jesus was arrested. Have followed where they have brought Jesus. He's sitting in front of a fire warming himself. After all, it's a spring night and it's probably cold. Let's look at verses 66 and 67. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Again, this is early in the cold morning, people's warming himself, when a slave girl recognizes and challenges Peter. Now, it's dark outside, this is pre-morning light, but Peter would have been visible because he is standing in front of the fire. And not only that, but this is a slave girl. This is somebody, one of the few many servants that are in the high priest's house, somebody who shouldn't matter in the eyes of Peter in terms of she shouldn't matter to be afraid of. Not that she doesn't matter, but there's no reason for Peter to be afraid of her. Hans Beyer says this based on Peter's 
denials. More than ever before, it becomes clear that being associated with Jesus can become not only a personal liability, but life-endangering. It is clear to Peter that to admit that he was with Jesus is to endanger his life. And so he's standing in front of the fire, and this slave girl comes and says, you were with Jesus. Then in verse 68, he says this, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. So there are three key things in this verse. We see Peter's denial, we see Peter's move, and we see the rooster's crow. Peter denies Jesus. Instead of denying himself, instead of denying his fear and admitting that he was a disciple of Jesus, like he said he would hours before, Peter denies Jesus. Hours before, he had emphatically affirmed his unfailing loyalty to Jesus. And yet this denial shows that he's actually only loyal to himself. And it's interesting, too, because it's not just a no, but a disowning of Christ. I don't know who you are talking about. So that was Peter's denial. But what what does Peter do? He doesn't just deny, but he moves. He moves away from the fire. He moves out of the light in order to get away from the slave girl. I find it interesting that he doesn't just leave. But he moves away from the fire so that this girl can't see him anymore. And then we have this rooster crowing in the background. Now, it's early morning, so this isn't unusual, which might explain why Peter didn't notice it. But Peter's forgetting what Jesus said about the rooster crowing. And this is added in here basically to create tension for us, to point out that Peter has started these denials that Jesus said would come before the second rooster crow. And so we see Peter denying Jesus one time. Then in verse 69, that same girl follows him. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. The Greek here shows that this is the same servant girl. So even though Peter tried to get away and get out of the light, she says it again. And this time she includes the crowd. She says, hey, look, this guy, he's one of the ones that followed Jesus. And in verse 70, Peter denies again, but again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. The crowd accuses him. Peter denies Jesus again when this this slave girl brings that accusation. But then, as they start to look at him, as they start to listen to what she said, as they start to talk, they, the whole crowd, says, no, you are one of them. You're a Galilean. In verse 71, we read this. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Peter's words here are more and more explicitly a disavowal of Christ. He doesn't just say no. He escalates in how he says no. 
And in fact, in 71, we see he's even dismissive of Jesus, pretending like he doesn't even know who they are talking about. But most telling is the addition of an oath on himself. Most telling is that he swears it is true. Many commentators believe that it's likely that he invoked God's name in the name of the Lord I do not know. Now it's interesting, isn't it? That upstairs in the high priest's house, they are trying to accuse and to kill Jesus, claiming that he is blaspheming. And down in the courtyard, Peter is blaspheming. Swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. Christ is being accused of blaspheming while Peter is committing blasphemy. These verses are interesting because there's escalation in each one of these verses. There's escalation in the accusers. At first, it's just one slave girl, somebody who the world would look at as insignificant. Only her, and by herself, she comes up to Peter and says, you're one of them. And then next we see that she again accuses, but she tries to rope in the crowd. So she's accusing and bringing the crowd along as well. And then finally, the whole crowd is saying, no, Peter, you are one of them. It has escalated from one person to an entire crowd accusing Peter. But it's not just the accusers that are escalating. It's the denials. At first, Peter just denies one person's allegations. He says to one person, no, I am not that person. And then, when she brings in all the other people, he makes a public denial. I don't know Jesus. And finally, when the whole crowd says, you are with him, you are a Galilean, he goes beyond contradicting them, beyond saying no, and makes an oath, which is there to cause us to flinch, to cause us to recognize what Peter is doing. He's being accused by more and more people in a larger and larger setting. And he's denying in a more and more emphatic way. Peter's sin is escalating. He's not just lying. He's not just denying. But in the end, he's taking an oath on himself. This is how sin functions. Brothers and sisters, it escalates. If we're able to sin and nobody catches us and, and we're able to keep it hidden, we'll do it again. And as that keeps happening, we'll, we'll get bigger and bigger in our sin. The Holy Spirit should be pricking our hearts, but if we can get away with it, we'll get away with it. Sin escalates, and we see that here in Peter's denials. It starts with one-on-one, -on -one, goes to a public denial, and finally, beyond a contradiction, to an oath that never should have been made and should cause us as readers to flinch. And then we get verse 72. And immediately, remember, Mark loves this word, immediately. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The rooster crows, 
the truth comes crashing down on Peter and it causes him to weep over his sin. Matthew 26 and Luke 22 don't just say weep. They said that Peter wept bitterly, completely breaking down. Now, it's easy for us to forget as we tear apart just these tiny sections of text, but in this chapter already, we've seen Judas commit sins against Jesus. Judas had no remorse. He sold Jesus out and went on. We never get the sense that Judas was ever remorseful of what he did in betraying Jesus. And Peter betrays Jesus, runs from Jesus, denies Jesus. But Peter also immediately recognizes what has happened, weeps over his sin, and we know he repents. So we've looked at Peter's sin in these verses now let's look at Christ's salvation. This is a really hard section of text because one of Christ's beloved disciples denies him three times and lies to save his own skin. You remember Jesus had more than 12 disciples, but those 12 were the ones that he intentionally were pouring into. And then we even hear that there are three specifically that are kind of the inner circle, and Peter is one of those. And so this person who is so close to Jesus, as close as Scripture says somebody got to Jesus, denies that he knows Jesus. That makes this hard. If any of you have ever been betrayed, you know what that feeling is like. You know how painful that is. One of Jesus' closest disciples has denied him and lied to save his own skin. This is a good reminder to us that even the beloved disciples of Christ sin against him. If you think you don't sin or if you think you don't have very many sins, you are believing a lie of Satan. Even those closest to Jesus sinned against him. This is also an interesting text because if we think about it, context is, ha ha ha, good, you were awake. Context is king. Who wrote this? John Mark wrote this based on Peter's witness. And so Peter is telling John Mark all these things. Peter is being very frank and transparent in his testimony to Mark. Peter is admitting his failure, and he is showing how his failure escalated. He is showing how he fleed. He is showing that he wept. He is being very frank and transparent. Why can Peter be so honest about his sin? Why can Peter readily admit how much of a sinner he is? We know he can do that because of what we know is coming. Through faith in Christ, we are restored. This is the gospel that believing in Jesus brings us the things that we can't get on our own. When we sin, we're called to repent, to turn from sin and back to God. Despite our sin, we have hope. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, where we see Adam and Eve sin against the Lord, we also see that as God comes in 
and starts to hand out punishments, he says this in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've said in our overview section of Scripture that this is the first mention of a coming Savior. It's what theologians call the proto-evangelion. Proto means first, like prototype. Proto-evangelion. Evangelion is the Greek word for gospel. This is the first gospel, despite the first sin, despite Adam and Eve not listening to what was going on, despite them believing the lives of Satan that they could be like God. God provides hope. God provides hope. And probably the most thorough explanation of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 1, 2, and 3, we see we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That means we can do nothing. You know, sometimes you hear people say, well, the gospel is you're drowning and somebody throws you a, a, a life jacket and you, you put it on and now you can float. Not true. We're dead. Dead. On the bottom of the ocean, no life jacket is going to help us. There's nothing we can do. We're dead in our sins. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Despite our sin, we have hope. But hope didn't come along after Jesus, conveniently fitting into the narrative that he preached. That hope was there from the beginning. From right after the first sin, God has said, I will redeem you. And we see this in the restoration of Peter. Peter could proclaim his sin, could admit and be transparent about how he deserted Jesus, how he ran from Jesus, how he denied Jesus three times in an escalating pattern because Peter knew he was restored in Jesus. In John 21, Christ restores Peter, and Peter becomes the apostolic Spokesman. After his resurrection, he goes to Peter and asks him three times, Will you love my people? Just like Peter denied three times, Jesus calls him three times, trusting him that he understands that he's been forgiven and that now his job is to be the apostolic spokesman bringing the gospel to Christ's people. We should both see ourselves in Peter, recognizing our sin, recognizing how every time we sin, we deny God. But we should also rejoice and be incredibly encouraged in the forgiveness and restoration that Jesus brings. Christ will forgive our sin when we repent. That is true. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that we're dead. There's nothing we can do. We can't grab the life preserver. We can't put on the life jacket. We can't swim towards the boat when we're drowning. We're on the bottom of the ocean. Bones. And we're there because we've denied Jesus. Because we have no desire to love or glorify Him because we're sinful. But God, but God, but God loved us so much that he sent Jesus. Peter, Peter could have been by Jesus' side. Peter could have been encouraging Jesus. Peter could have been there to affirm that Jesus was the truth and that all of those testimonies against Jesus were lies. But he ran. He was fearful. He denied Jesus. He lied. But God, being rich in mercy, forgave because of his repentance. This gospel should never be abused. We should never intentionally sin or be okay with our sin or rebel against God. But when we do, we should weep over our sin, over our rebellion, just like Peter, and we should repent. Remember, Peter is teaching us here that we should weep over our sin. We should hate our sin. We should not revel and enjoy our sin. We should recognize how it is pulling us apart from God. And like Peter, we should recognize that as we trust in sin, our sin is just going to escalate and get bigger and bigger. We need to run from it and run to God. Our goal, our our direction is to be more and more like Christ. But we're not Jesus, so we're going to sin. And what we do when we sin will show how much we trust the Lord. When we realize our sin, do we say, well, as long as I ask forgiveness at some point in the future, I'll be fine. And then let our sin escalate and let our sin grow and not be mournful over our sin at all. Or when we realize our sin, do we repent? It's interesting, R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this section says that most of the time when we sin, we don't realize it until we're alone. Maybe it's right before we go to bed when we're laying our head down on that pillow, we recognize, oh my gosh, I did that today. We should repent right then. As soon as we realize our sin, we should repent. Because Christ calls us to holiness. Instead of sinning, we are supposed to be motivated by Christ's covenantal faithfulness, Christ's mercy, Christ's love, and we're to grow in becoming more and more like Christ. Christ leads us to godliness through his love, through his grace, through his gospel. So we have to ask ourselves, are we motivated by Jesus and the gospel and pursuing godliness, becoming more and more like Christ? Or are we hiding our Christianity 
Are we denying that we believe? Are we not pursuing the Lord and instead pursuing the world? Peter denied Jesus because he feared for his life. Are we fearing the world and not trusting in Jesus? Or are we pursuing him? Are we seeking to grow like him? Again, we're not going to be perfect. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Are you avoiding the commands of God? God calls us to be pure. To be pure in what we're watching and what we're reading and what we're listening to. Are those things worthy of God? Are those things you would share with anybody here? The Lord calls us to evangelize, to share our faith, to share our love, to show this beautiful gospel to those around us. Are you not doing that for fear? Fear of rejection, fear of not knowing, whatever the case may be. The Lord calls us to give. Not what's left after we've had our fun and spent our money and our time and our gifts, but to give what's first. Not only that, but God calls us to serve. Not only doing it when it's convenient or when we have time left, but being faithful in using our spiritual gifts, being faithful in using the time God has given. Listen, many of the things that God wants us to do don't require any kind of special skills. They just require us to spend time doing it. Church workdays require no special skills. Trust me, I've done it. I have no skills. Are we being faithful in our pursuit of God, in His Word, and in prayer? Are we in the Bible? Are we praying daily? The Old Testament constantly tells us to have the Scriptures written on our hearts. We also see Paul tell his churches to pray without ceasing. Are we doing that, or are we only doing that when we find the time that's left? Well, I finished watching eight shows. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to bed. Lord, just thank you for this day. Amen. Are we being faithful, or are we avoiding the commands of God? This is a hard sermon. It's hard talking about sin because you need to feel the weight of your sin. You need to feel the guilt of your sin and understand that it is real. But the good news is, when we have faith in Christ, He forgives us of that sin. He brings us to a place of joy. And He is with us as we pursue Him. When we realize we're sinning, when that cock crows twice and we're struck with the realization that we have now sinned against the Lord, we weep and repent. We pursue the Lord, trusting that He will help us to fight sin and to pursue Him. God wants us to grow in godliness. If you're trying to do that, ask for help. He wants to give it to you. Peter denied Jesus. Just like it was predicted, we will sin. The question is, what do we do when we sin? 
Peter denied Jesus when that rooster crowed the second time. He wept, recognizing his sin. He repented of that sin and trusted in the Lord and was a faithful mouthpiece for God. Judas denied Jesus and betrayed Jesus, and we never read that he felt bad about it. Do you sin and not repent, or do you sin, weep over your sin, repent of your sin, pursuing the Lord and following Jesus? Does your sin cause you to weep? Do you even know what your sin is? Listen, there are a lot of Christians out there that don't think they sin because they don't take the time to read the Word and realize what God is calling us to, to think about their lives and realize where they're being faithful and where they're being faithless. If you don't think you have sin, you are fooled. One of the most tragic things I came across as a pastor was I was in a presbytery committee bringing in new pastors, people who wanted to either go to seminary or wanted to be under care of the presbytery. We had a meeting one day, and I, when there were two candidates that came before us, gave us their testimonies, and I asked the question, where do you struggle with sin, and how are you dealing with that? And one of them said, I used to struggle with pride, but I've defeated that, so I'm not struggling with sin anymore. Uh, I was shocked. I think we chuckle because we realize how stupid that is. We realize how shocking that is. That someone who wants to be a pastor would think they don't deal with sin. I was weeping. He's weeping inside. This is a man who wants to draw our people to Jesus who doesn't think he sins. It's just not true. Where are you sinning? 1 John 3, 1 through 10 speaks to that man. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, it's a term of endearment, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You are a sinner. You sin every day. You've already sinned today. The question is, what do you do with that sin? You feel no remorse for your sinfulness like Judas? That's a tragedy, and you should pray that the Lord would point out your sin and draw you into faithfulness. 
But if you're like Peter, and when you recognize your sin, you weep over it, turn from it to the Lord. Ask Him to help you pursue faithfulness and to stop avoiding God's commands. That is what He wants us to do. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that You would help us to understand this text. Not just the easy words that we can read, not just that Peter sinned three times, not just that that sin escalated, but that this is but a mirror of our own lives. We think like Peter that we won't sin. And yet like Peter, we stumble. We think like Peter, we will be pure and holy, and yet like Peter, we fail. Father, may the Spirit show us where we are avoiding your commands, where we are not pursuing holiness, where we are sinning, whether it be impurity, evangelism, giving, serving, faithfully pursuing you, or something else. Help us to repent of that sin to turn from that sin, and to turn back to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.